in about four weeks' time, billions of people around the world will, will celebrate Easter. And we will be celebrating Easter too. The question is, why is it so important? Why every year so many people around the world celebrate this thing called Easter? Over the next six weeks, so two weeks even past Easter, we will look at the passion of Jesus Christ from, from the book of John, from the Gospel of John, starting today from John 18. That is the story of Easter, you see, the passion of Jesus Christ, um, the story of Jesus' last days on earth. So, so far in the Gospel of John up to now, we have seen Jesus speaking, teaching, performing signs, and did a lot of things. These are all important up to, you know, John 17. For the past two years we've been looking at this. They're all important things that all of Jesus did and said. Yet, from 18 onwards, the passion of this Christ, the last days of Jesus, from today onwards, when you get arrested, it is ultimately more important than everything else. This is why, because we're reaching the climax of the story of the Bible. See, if you've been reading the, the Bible from, from the book of Genesis, we, you know, we're reaching the climax, we're reaching the end, so to speak, of the good news, the gospel. For without it, without the passion of Jesus Christ, without these chapters, what happened to Jesus, then there's no gospel really, there's no good news. If there's no gospel, then there's no Christianity. See, this is why it's so important to pay attention to this part of the Gospel of John. For without it, we, all of us, if you say you're Christians, all of us are wasting our time. We're wasting our time. We're gathering here, wasting our time. We could be sleeping in at home, watching Netflix, eating breakfast in bed. Yet instead, we're here gathering, worshiping Jesus. So the opening passage of the Passion here, chapter 18, uh, in the narrative, it introduces us to the cast of the gospel. Like in a movie, you know, some, some movies in the beginning, it introduces you to the name of the people. It gives you a picture of who will be in this movie, who are the important people in this movie. And in this opening, in a sense, we get a glimpse, you know, we get introduction to the cast of the gospel and how these cast relate to each other, to one another, okay? So, in a way, I'm going to look at today in three sections. The first one is, the first cast, who is Jesus? The most obvious one. And secondly, we're going to look at who are we? Who you and me are? And what did Jesus do for us? Okay? Who is Jesus? Who are we? And how we relate to one another. How should we should relate to one another. So, simple enough, let's jump into who is Jesus. So, let's read from John 18, verse 1 to 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden, this is the garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. So, there's a gate, perhaps, it's a wall garden. Now, Judas was, Judah who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So, Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns 
and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, uh, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's interesting, isn't it? As, as in the opening, Christian read for us Isaiah 43. And the Lord said, I am he. And Jesus said, here, I am he. Now, this may not sound anything special for people. When Jesus said, well, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? Well, I am he. But it is actually quite special because Jesus didn't really say, I am he here. This is really just actually say I am. In the Greek, it says ego in I am. So when they say, Who do you sing? Jesus Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And if you remember, if you've been reading uh, the Bible with me this year, um, we, we just read not long ago the book of Exodus, where Moses and, you know, was sent by God to rescue God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses said, well, what can I do when, when I go to my people? Who do you, what do I say to them? Who, who, who sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. So God gave himself a name, I am. So that's why this is significant. When Jesus said, I am, he said, I am God to these people. He's not really responding in a way, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am. When he said that, he said, I am God. You're looking for me? <laughs> so that is why they terrified. They were terrified. So in a way, in this garden, in the opening of this passion, Jesus immediately revealed himself to them, who he really is, that he is God. This is important for us to pay attention about Jesus revealing himself because this is the distinction of Christianity in a way. And so one of the most important distinction between Christian Christianity and other religions really. Because in in you know this is why also why Christians and Christianity has been accused of exclusivity because they say because of this the claim of Jesus that he is God. Uh, because we live in a world where we want all religions are the same. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I believe whatever I want to believe. In the end, all religions teach us to be good. But that's not what Christianity says. You see? Because other religions say, that, well, but let's go back a little bit. Just, you know, a few chapters back. We look at this last year, so we're looking at it again. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Does it sound like Jesus suggesting, well, all religions are the same. You can believe whoever you want to believe. In the end, you'll get to God. No, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father, to God, except through me. There's no way, Jesus said. If you don't come to me, you will not get to God. 
If you want to get to God, there's only one way. That is through Jesus. And this is why Christianity is different to any other religions in the world. And perhaps you may say, well, that's a bit outrageous, isn't it? To have that kind of claim of exclusivity. Isn't that kind of arrogant to say that? Well, this is why here Jesus tells us why the claim of Christianity is not outrageous. This is why the claim of Christianity is not ridiculous. Because in other religions, they cannot do that because all the founders are mere mortals like you and me. So all they can do to you, for us, is this. I will show you the way to the Father or to God. That's all other religions can say to you. Because they're all mere mortals. But only in Christianity, Jesus said, I will not show you the way. I am the way. There's no other religions in the world that can tell you they are the way. Only Christians can say that. So Christianity, in a way, is founded by God himself. And that's why when Jesus said, I am, it's a proof that he has the authority to say that he is the only way. And no other religions in the world can offer us that. No, nothing. The only reason, if there's any reason at all, that the claim of Christianity is not, uh, that, well, the claim of Christianity is outrageous, the only <coughs> possibility if what Jesus says is not true. If what Jesus says is true, then it's nothing outrageous about the claim of Christianity. So this is what we will unpack today a little bit and for the next six weeks on through the passions of our Lord Jesus Christ, of who he is, that of his claim, that he is God, that there's no other way except through him to the Father. So now the question is this for us. I want us to reflect on this. If if what you are looking for in Christianity or in, in a religion, whatever religion it is that you or spirituality, see some people, modern people, postmodern people like us, some of us don't like the word religion, we like to, like to call it spirituality. Um, they have the same thing. But if you're looking for a religion or spirituality or, or set of kind of guidance to abide in your life, to enhance your life, to make your life better, then Christianity is not for you. Let me say that again. If you look towards Christianity or any other religion to enhance your life, so that you have a good life, so that you have a happy life, whatever it is, whatever enhancements you look for in your life, and you look to Christianity for that, then I'm going to tell you that Christianity may not be fit for you. Because some of us have been treated Christianity as some sort of life-enhancing religion. We come to God to be enhanced. Um, it is true when, when you become a Christian that your life gets better. It is true. Uh, enhance or flourish in, 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 in a way. It is true. But, but because Jesus is God, Christianity, your religion, your belief in Jesus will demand everything from you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone in your life that demands everything from you? 
If you're married, sometimes even the idea of that someone else's house demanding everything of us is too burdensome for us, it's too overwhelming for us. But if you are Christian and you say Jesus is my Lord, then He will demand everything of you. So if you just want something to make your life better or enhance your life, to enhance your life, then this is what I'm going to say. Christianity will be too costly for you. You'll be overpaying for your getting, for what you're getting. Because there are more cost-effective ways or more convenient alternatives for you if all you want is a good life. There's other ways. Easier way. Cheaper way. That will not demand everything of you. See, to be a Christian um, is not simply to show up on Sunday. To be a Christian is not, in some cases, even to show up every, every now and then when, when you can get up in the morning. Or when you when you don't have anything to do, it's like, oh, I'm free this Sunday, then I then I rock up in church. Um, I'm not. I've got a birthday plan, so I'm not going to come to church. So to be a Christian means there's a certain kind of demand in your life. To be a Christian is to have all your life to be about Jesus. Think about that. All your life, every parts of your life centered in on Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian because of Jesus' claim. He's not just going to show us the way to the Father. He says, I am the way. I am He. I am God. So to be a Christian, it will affect how you work, how you study, how you treat your spouse, how you treat stranger, how you spend your money, how you're not spending your money. How you spend your time, how you're not spending your time, what shows you what's on Netflix, what shows not to watch on Netflix, it will affect every single part of your life. So that's who Jesus is. But who are we? That leads us to our second point. Judas, the betrayer here, who betrayed Jesus, is one of Jesus' original disciples. So, Jesus, God himself, only had 12 disciples, original 12 disciples, and one of them betrayed him, led him to the cross, in a way. And this should give us comfort when, when we be betrayed. We're not God. And if someone betray us, you know, we should accept we should expect that in a way, at least. But Judas, he is one of the twelve. He came to betray Jesus. Uh, he didn't come alone. Do you notice that? He didn't come alone. Uh, he came with a lot of people, actually. Let's, let's look at that, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. See, a band of soldiers here is at least a couple of hundred of Roman soldiers. At least 200. In the garden. Not a big garden. I visited the garden where it's supposed 
where the garden get salmon when when I was in Israel wasn't big. It would be crowded if you had two hundred soldiers there. Very crowded. You would even say that's a bit excessive, isn't it? To arrest Jesus, an arm who's an arm with hundreds of soldiers. Now, see, this is quite common though in, in that time. Uh, if you look at Acts twenty-three, verse twenty-three, this is where uh, the Romans. Soldiers were escorting Paul, the Apostle Paul, from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It says this 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. These are what it means to escort one person. Uh, to escort Paul, one person, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. And they also came with lanterns and torches. And weapons. So these these are soldiers. These are trained soldiers. These Roman soldiers are trained. They are hardcore soldiers. Um, not only they came in big numbers, they have weapons with them. They're serious about this. Why? Why do you think they do so? What? Why would they come in such a big Why do they think they come in such a big numbers? <laughs> Sorry about that. Siri likes to help us. So, why do you think they come in such big numbers with weapons and everything? Well, it's to in intimidate. That's why. To intimidate, to, to, to scare Jesus and the disciples. See? We, we, may, not we may not be able to picture this. But imagine you're sleeping. This is this is dark. They come with torches and lanterns. Imagine you're sleeping at night at home. There's a loud bang on your door, and there's a handful of army personnel armed, fully geared, banging on your door. That would intimidate anyone. That would certainly intimidate me. This is hundreds of them doing that. But did they intimidate Jesus? Let's look at what would happen next, verse 4 to 6. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you see? Doesn't sound like someone who, who was intimidated. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is interesting. They came to intimidate Jesus. Instead, when Jesus revealed himself to them, I am he, what happened? They drew back and fell to the ground. We just look at the passage this last week from the book of Ephesians about standing firm, standing your ground. That's what soldiers are trained for, to stand firm on your ground, because if you fall, it's like death sentence for you, and and your friends. Jesus didn't do much. Jesus just revealed himself. I am he. And the effect is they drew back and they fell to the ground. As I said, these are trained soldiers. Trained to stand firm. To stand their ground. If we trick, like, I mean, come on, we are clumsy people, some of us are. 
That's normal. Because we think like, oh, that, that's not a big deal because we think we are yourself. We are untrained. Our, our knees are weak. Our quads are not trained. You know, we don't, we don't do leg press 200 kilogram or whatever we do. We win. So we think it's normal, but these are not for them. These are not normal for these people. So, so think about that. Even great numbers of trained soldiers drew back and fall to the ground. Jesus was unharmed. This reveals a lot about the soldiers and in turn reveals a lot who we are. But how about the what what does it reveal to us about who we are and who, who the soldiers are? See, in the Bible, when a when a person, when a mere mortals, human being meet a divine being, the reaction is never mild. So when, when human beings meet angel, meet God, epiphany, or whatever it is, a divine being, the reaction, the response is never mild. It's never like, yes, so what? Never. It's never like high-fiving one another. Never. The, for example, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, this is a famous passage in Isaiah, when Isaiah encountered God, he says this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am undone. I'm coming apart, basically. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The King, capital K, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. I'm gone case, basically. He said, I'm dead. I'm as good as dead. That's what Isaiah said when he meet God, when he see God. So in the Bible, when, when somebody meets a divine being, it's never like, yeah, like some of our attitude coming to church, worshiping God, like he's just our best friend. Isaiah fell apart in the presence of God. Moses wanted to see God, and God says, what? If you see me, you will die. Uzzah, helping King David to move the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that story in the Old Testament? The Ark was about to fall down, and Uzzah, thing is so great, he touched and tried to hold up the Ark of the Covenant. Instantly, he died. There are many more examples in the Bible but to show us when a person, a human being, meet a divine being, the, the action, the, the reaction, the response is never mild. It's not mild. It's far from being mild. Always extreme. The question for all of us is this to understand who we are. In the presence of God, you too will fall to the ground sooner or later, whether you realize it or not. Some people fall to the ground right now in this life. Others will be running a life to come. But for those people, it will be too late. Many Christians though, however, sadly, even if you are Christian today, do not have this response, this reaction to God. We don't fall to the ground in the face of God. We treat God simply as our secret key to a happy and fulfilled life. If I am Jesus, if I become a Christian, then I will have a fulfilled, happy life. 
We don't treat him as God. We treat him as, as an ATM that if we know the pin number, money will spit out of that machine. Some of us treat God like that. We don't fall to the ground. See, again, I'm not saying that if you become a Christian, you will not be happy or will not your life will not be fulfilled or have a flourish and good life. I'm not saying that. But a lot of us perhaps still coming to God and Jesus expecting just that, that He will do that for us. Yet our response is not falling to the ground, worshiping Him, reusing Him. Will you fall to the ground in the presence of God? I'm, I'm not talking about physical posture falling to the ground. Perhaps we need that sometimes. But mainly I'm not talking about that. Mainly I'm talking about how we live our life. How you live your life. See, the reason we don't fall to the ground worshiping God is because we think there's something else or someone else that can help us apart from Jesus. Jesus is just one of them. One of the keys. There are many ATMs out there. Jesus is just one of them. So there's no need for us to fall to the ground and center all our life around Jesus. Because there's other options. What are the other options? What are the other options? Well, our relationship. That's a big one. We look at to our relationship to be one of those elements in our life that will make us fulfilled, happy, satisfied. If you're single, you think, if I have a relationship with someone, then my life will be better. If you think that way, then you have not fallen to the ground in the face of God, before the face of God. You still fall to the ground on other things. For some of us, perhaps we have we are in a relationship, perhaps we are married, that's not the thing. Perhaps your career, if you're in a relationship and and you are young, career is your thing. Only if I have that position, then I'll be satisfied. For now, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna work and do it and perhaps even suck. Doesn't matter, I'm gonna sweat because my goal is there. I'm gonna have that position. I'm gonna get that job at that company. If that's your attitude, then you have not fallen to the ground before the face of God. And some of us, if, if you're even younger, perhaps you're right if you're still studying. If only I can get this, so in order for me to get into this university, to get this degree, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be fine. See, there's so many ways, in so many ways, we could show that Jesus is not the center of our lives. Is Jesus the center at the center of your life? Because if He is at the center, if Jesus is at the center, then nothing will break you apart from the inside. You may not have the relationship or the careers or, or the degree or, or the money that you aim for. You may not get that, but you will not fall apart. You will not be broken. When life disappoints you, 
you will not fall apart instead you will worship when life disappoints you you will count your blessings but if you don't if the relationship is the center of your life it's one of the center of your life when you lose that relationship when that relationship disappoints you oh man you will stumble just like the soldiers you will fall back, you will stumble, you will fall apart like Isaiah, you will become undone. Whatever it is, whether it's your relationship, your career, your wealth, your health, your parents, your children, if any of this takes center in your life, your life is so fragile because you have no control of it. It's only take your spouse to disappoint you for your life to be fallen apart. If career is your thing, it's only need one day that your boss call you in the office and say, your time here is finished for you to fall apart and stumble. If being healthy and wealthy is your thing, it's only take that one phone call from your doctor to say, I'm sorry. You have three weeks to live for your life to fall apart. Jesus is at the center. When all those, any of those things happen, you fall to the ground and you will worship. And you will count your blessing. That's who we are. So what did Jesus do for us? And for the disciples? And for the people that he encountered in the garden? The question is for us, that I want to address in this last point is, what happens when you stumble? If Jesus is at the center of your life, what happens when you stumble? See, if you live long enough, uh, you will experience disappointment. So if you're really old, then you, you have experienced a lot of disappointments. Some of you, I can say, perhaps you have experienced a lot more disappointments and betrayal, broken relationship, losing jobs, losing anything, like a lot more than me. And some of you have not experience as many. So let's look at what happens then. What happens when you use something? John 18, 8 to 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let this man go. Pointing to the disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So soldiers on the ground. They fall back, they fall down. Jesus did not say to the disciples what other leaders might have said. Charge! Attack! Kill! Jesus didn't say that. These soldiers are vulnerable now. They're on the ground. Instead, Jesus said to the soldiers, take me instead. Let them go. Do you see how amazing that is? What kind of a leader of a group, the way he protects his disciples is to say, take me instead. Rather than telling the disciples to go and charge. Any leaders in the world, when they want to attack another country, they don't go say, let me go, or take me, and let my people go. No, they say, let's go and get them. That's what they say. Any other leaders in the world, when they want to attack another country, they say, to the people, go get him. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, 
take me instead. Uh, but you, you may say, well, that's what Jesus did for the disciples. How about me? Um, Jesus had that answer too. In verse 11, Jesus said this. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? To drink the cup in the Bible is to take up the wrath of God. The judgment of God himself, which is God's judgment on sin. So that is to drink the cup. So when Jesus said, take me instead, leave this man, Jesus basically said, let the wrath of God be upon me. The judgment of God for sin be upon me, not on these disciples. So it's not just about rescuing them from the hands of the soldiers that night. It's not about the physical arrest and the physical release of the disciples. It's, it's beyond that here. Jesus didn't say, let them go in a way that so that they do not get arrested. Jesus sees this as him taking the wrath of God, taking the judgment of God for the sins of the disciples. So what it means is this, what Jesus did for the disciples there applies to you and me today as well. So, so no, Jesus did not just wait for the disciples. Jesus did it for you and me also. This is what it means for us, what, for what Jesus did for you and me and for the disciples. It means this. When you stumbled in life, when life disappoints, when your spouse disappoints, when career disappoints, when the bank balance running low, when the doctor say you have cancer, this is what it means. When your life is falling apart, Jesus doesn't just will not just come to you and say, Take, you know, be strong. You are better than that. You can do it. Instead, Jesus will come, take your hand, and say, let me take your place. He did not just come to comfort, to rub your back. He come to take your place. Whatever you're experiencing, whatever disappointments in your life, Jesus say, let me take your place. He stumbles for you in your place. What does it mean for Jesus to take our place? What does it mean? Well, it means when your relationship is broken, when your career is disappointing, your children is not doing so well, it means you don't have to stumble. You know, do you see that? When life disappoints you, Jesus said, I will take your place. It means this. You do not have to fall apart. You do not have to stumble. You can face it without having to stumble. Why? Because Jesus stumbled on your place. He fell apart, fell apart for you. The, the opposite is also true. I know I, I've been giving you examples to negative things that happen. Because the positive thing can happen as well. This just have the same effect. You have an amazing relationship, you worship your relationship. You have an amazing career, you worship your career. Some of us don't come to church because our career is so amazing that it demands seven days of our time. Our relationship is so amazing that we don't come and worship it because we worship our relationship. Because our spouse wants us, our time. 
want us to spend time with them. Or we worship our children, our parents. And so worshiping God, we spend time with them as priority. So it doesn't have to be all bad for us to stumble. If you do that, you just stumble all the same. If at the center of your life is your career that is flourishing, or your relationship that is amazing, then you have stumbled as well, if that is the center of the world. So, that's what Jesus did for you. He stumbled at your place for, your, for you, so that you don't have to. When the life is amazing, at the mountaintops, or at the deep valley. He drank a cup. He stumbled and fell, so that you don't have to. So no matter what is going on in your life right now, whatever it is, right? It could be up, it could be down. It could be the best time of your life. It doesn't matter. Or the worst time of your life. It does not matter. You do not have to stumble and fall. You will only fall instead in worship of the one who is falling for you. Thanks, God.